Hoite Arapuru Sounds Hinga reo, hinga mana rangatira ma teino koutou katoa you're with the Moments in Time podcast series for Sounds, Centre for New Zealand Music, Toi Te Arapuoru, ko Charlotte Wilson, aho. Our biggest city has seen its fair share of protests and noise. And who better to capture the voice of that city than a composer who's never been shy of politics, who has a deep fascination with soundscapes and colours, textures and the possibilities of the human voice. She is Eve de Castro Robinson, and in Cries of Auckland, she turns to the cries that she herself has chanted in protest marches and the cries that punctuated her childhood. And so we begin by talking about her relationship with Auckland itself. I guess it's my Turanga Waiwai, if I may temporarily adopt that term. I wasn't born there, actually. I was born in London by virtue of my New Zealand father doing his um, surgical degrees at the time. But then we came back to Auckland to live when I was five, I think. So I've spent pretty much my whole life in the city with little forays back and forth and around the place I like to get around. Um, but it's become, as I get older, the longer I live there and the more I get to know it, um, the more I realise how precious it is to me in terms of its um, geography. I do a lot of walking and because um, Auckland is, is sort of undulating in hills and the, the wonderful maunga and the water and the sea and I swim and walk. So those two things, I guess, bind me to the place. And I've been rooted within the city centre for quite a long time by virtue of my job and where I live. And now that you put the question to me, um, I realise how special the place actually is and of course there are a lot of things I dislike and disapprove of but um, no it, it it is it is my city De Castro Robinson, first person in history to graduate Doctor of Music and Composition from the University of Auckland, and a long-time professor there. Her ties to the city run deep. This commission came from the New Zealand String Quartet for the visit of Australia's Song Company in 2015, predicated on the actual historical cries of London by Renaissance composer Orlando Gibbons. Six composers were commissioned in total and told they could choose any city they liked. Six voices and string quartet, what on earth does one do with that combination? I think in my early thoughts, 
I thought about Queen Street, which I described as um, the resonant concrete and steel canyon of my home city's uh, downtown artery. Rather a mixed blessing, as Queen Street, really, but acoustically uh, wonderfully live. And I thought back to my childhood and how I'd go in there, either with a parent or a grandmother, and the the boys selling the star, the evening newspaper, defunct for a long time now, would be standing on corners, the corners of Wellesley Street and Queen Street, if anyone, any listeners can imagine that posse, with the bright pumpkin yellow tin newspaper bin, and they'd be calling across the street, a, a sort of thing that was like, like that. So that was in my oral memory since. And I never really, as one doesn't with things like that, stop to examine, as a child, what they might be saying. I think I knew the word star. Do you know what I mean? So that was always in my sonic memory as a kind of tag. And I thought, well, I'll start with that. And I remember asking my father what he thought they were saying and then trawling through the internet trying to find a record of what those words might have been. It wasn't that easy. So I just called it Star Here, Find Out, and then Read All About It, Read All About It, which I think is what they were saying. But you imagine being a little fellow and they seemed to be young and they seemed to be Māori, those little boys from memory, uh, although it's very hazy now, um, they obviously put their own vocal spin on it in order to project it. I'm talking to composer Eve de Castro Robinson about her work, Cries of Auckland, with that arresting opening, the cries of the star newspaper boys in Auckland in the 60s. And the other cries are inspired by protests. Do you describe yourself as a political person? Oh, yes, I think that any of us, by virtue of who we are, are what we represent, and we're political by our very nature, whether we choose to do anything about it. So by virtue of being a a white, middle-class, educated, central city-dwelling, creative, heterosexual, cis female, (laughs) I'm all those things. And, you know, I'm I'm various other sub categories as well. I'm bipolar, I'm a Scorpio, I'm very left-leaning. And so all these things are informing my, not only my persona, my creative persona and my political persona, whether I choose to to emphasise them or not. So I guess some of my music turns out more specifically political than others. And this piece in particular... um, does have a political angle because of the fact that it grew from the the calls of the Star Boys through to other calls that I could remember in my decades of living there. Those have been uh, protest calls that I have either chanted or heard others chanting in protest marches, beginning with the anti-Springbok tour and I think quite an early pro-abortion one when I was still at school, perhaps 16, somewhere around that age when one starts going to 
protests if one is of a certain type. Springbok tour and then much, much later the Occupy movement and the anti-asset sales and the anti-TPPA rallies and really it just seems like earlier this year the Black Lives Matter won. So those things I've felt strongly enough about to go on the protest and take a uh, vociferous part in, although I'm not naturally given to loudly chanting because I'm a bit shy, but um, that's where a lot of the texts and slogans come from. slogan is a very compelling thing, isn't it? Did you find slogans a particularly fruitful source for this work? Oh yes, absolutely, because they're pithy, they're punchy, they make their point, and they're rhythmic, they're rhythmic. And so really, like a lot of uh, advertising slogans, which is what most of the population hears in terms of what a slogan is, the warehouse, the warehouse where everyone gets a bargain. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ridiculous when you think of how ubiquitous that kind of slogan is, exhorting people to pay for junk they do not need. Um, but the ones I've used, such as um, from the Springbok tour, remember, remember, remember Soweto, Nelson Mandela. It's very hard to say them without actually chanting. One, two, three, four, we don't want your racist tour. Bullshit, bullshit, throw out the bill, throw out the bill. They're all rhythmic. So in point of fact, they would almost be just as powerful without the words if you analyse it from a musical point of view. Yada-da-da, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. What do you enjoy about a good protest? The solidarity the solidarity, which I think is a hugely important thing in life, particularly in this period of ghastly late capitalism and and within the university where I've worked for a number of decades. If you don't have solidarity within the um, cornerstones of justice and what's right for, for people and workers, you don't have very much to base a society on. So I think that's the root of uh, what I enjoy it's the people, it's, I mean, I'm not in a choir, I've never been in a choir, for example, I've never played team sports, but within a protest where everyone is feeling as one, or more or less as one, and marching with a purpose, there's something very powerful about that to me as an individual and to me as a composer, I think, or let's call it a creative individual. Um, I remember decades ago my... Uh, then husband and I were in Italy, 1979, I think, and in the street, and there began to be 
an, a, an animated atmosphere, which was a bit, um, a, a little bit scary, and I heard the slow beat of a bass drum. It was a, an imminent protest, and then the protest came down the street, and I've never forgotten the sound of that, the beat of the bass drum, which spoke more eloquently than any, <laughs> any slogan, if you see what I mean. And so within this piece, there is a bass drum doing a similar thing, just supporting the action. But actually, any composer knows that a timpani roll or a, um, a grumbling bass drum really adds to the, <laughs> to the power of a thing. the end, the singer picks up a loud hailer and walks off the stage. I'm talking to composer Eve de Castro-Robinson about her work, Cries of Auckland. I find it really interesting also because this is music that's inspired by the street, by the soundscape of the real world. And that seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, to be a function of a lot of your music, that it's rooted in the real world. It's a very interesting observation, Charlotte, and thank you for making it. Uh, i just pausing for a moment to think about it, because certainly some pieces are like that. They're, they're about um, issues of immediate concern or about people, I guess, that kind of thing. I think in the past I used to create very definitively more abstracted work and think about the sound of the instruments and the colour and the gesture and the texture. And perhaps I have done that less um, over the past decade or so. So really I'm just thinking on my feet about why that is and I think it could be that it's a growing confidence about what, as a composer, I want to say. What do you want to say as a composer? There's no simple answer to that. Um, it's not specific things. I guess I'd like any of my work to resonate with with somebody who's experiencing it um, in a positive way or even a negative way because I, any bit of feedback is, is useful. Um, I mean, Gillian Whitehead once said... Um, I must write the music that only I can write. And that stayed with me. And it's not an immodest statement by the wonderful Gillian. It just meant that that's about all she can do. And it's important from a position of integrity that she do that. And it's not like, say, the British composer Sir Harrison Birkwistle who said, I simply don't care what people think. It's not that. 
that's a different kind of dismissive attitude. Um, and I've, I've always said to students, and it's hard with students because, of course, perhaps they, haven't, they don't know what it is to express themselves musically in a, in a personal voice. But you must don't try to sound like someone else. Don't don't be be pushed by all these powers that come at you. How long did it take you to develop that confidence in your own integrity as a composer? Well, having said all that about becoming confident over the decades, not that long. I was slightly older when I went into composition. I think in my mid mid twenties, and I came at it suddenly. I'd, I'd been a trained graphic designer and I, I lived with a man who was much older and I, I was, you know, I'd been around a bit. And so when composing came at me, I hadn't been through years of systematised exams and doing it at school, which is wonderful for some people, but I, I came at it from a purely creative way. I was, you know, dealing with sounds and colours and instruments and all these fantastic things um, in a creative way. Wow, this was called composing. So so partly that's due to um, my first composition teacher, John Rimmer, um, because on the first lesson in a, in a course that was called Materials of Music, a quite wonderful thing in 1982 or three or whatever it was, it was five to midday and he said come on we're all going to go outside onto Albert Park and we spilled out onto the park not knowing what was going to happen and the city clocks all started chiming midday and it sounds quite simple now and of course half those clocks have been silenced now or the building's not there or something Um, but they all started chiming at slightly different times and I always remember the look on John Rimmer's face He talked about phasing and and the clocks and we were listening to the soundscape. And I thought that was a a revelation in in terms of how to think about sound and I saw that it wasn't narrow anymore. Um, I've always been of the thinking, if you're going to use a flute or a bassoon or a bass drum or a zither, you should take advantage of its complete sound world same with the piano, you know, do experiment inside the strings and knocking and tapping and the extremes of the register. Why would you not? Mm. That is the instrument that you're dealing with. So that sort of thing's always been obvious to me. And I think that's, yes, partly the benefit of being a, a visual person in the first instance. Um, but I don't like the, the idea of being limited in any of these areas and I've always said to students one of the most important things is to get out go to the gallery go to the film festival go to the theatre go and look at the sea because it's taken for granted that you'll listen to music but you'll tend to listen to the kind of music that you want to or you will anyway but you must be a complete creative person you know, know a bit of poetry for example no, a little bit of cinema. You can't really be a fully-fledged sonic artist, let's call it, because the, the the traditional contemporary classical composer and the sonic artist have merged or emerging very quickly into one type of sonic creative, if 
for which there isn't really a word, sound artist. Um, and I know some people would be uncomfortable thinking about themselves as that, but I'm happy to be a sound artist. Eve de Castro Robinson on her work Cries of Auckland, performed live by the Carl Heinz Company. This podcast was presented and produced for Sound Centre for New Zealand Music, Toi Te Arapuoru by me, Charlotte Wilson. Thank you for listening. Sound production for the music extracts by RNZ Concert, rnz.co.nz slash concert. And to hear more about Cries of Auckland and Eve DeCastro Robinson, and for more information, go to the Sounds podcast website, sounds.org.nz. That's S-O-U-N-Z. Norera, tēnā koto, tēnā koto, tēnā tātou katoa. Toi te arapuru, sounds.